I'm almost 40, as you guys have reminded me twice. So, um... <laughs> we like to keep our guests humble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. From podium to politics, today's guest is Adam Vancouverden. He's an Olympic kayaking champion and politician. Adam attended four Olympic Games and earned Olympic medals and world championships galore throughout his athletic career. He retired from competitive sport after representing Canada one last time at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. In 2019, Adam was elected as the Member of Parliament for Milton, Ontario, representing the Liberal Party. He values empathy, advocacy, listening, and humility. Adam shares the impact that kayaking and nature has had on his life, his continued passion for sport and inclusion, his political roles, and his love and vision for Canada. Bonus points for Adam, his girlfriend Emily is a speech pathologist like me. <laughs> we had a lot of fun with Adam. Enjoy. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Adam, good. Nice to see you. This is great. You too. You know, based purely on the fact that you are a politician, I kind of assumed that you were older than us because that's such a grown-up job, but we're peers. Okay, cool. I was yeah. born in 82. When were you guys yeah, born? Yeah, me too. 82. But your birthday's closer to Lowell's because he's the end of 81. Oh, right on. And how do you feel about us now being labeled geriatric millennials? Oh, is that what we are? Are we the oldest possible millennials? Yeah, they're now yeah. saying 1980 to 1985 are geriatric millennials. Geriatric? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, well, my brother was born in 85, and I would not consider him geriatric. He's like the youngest 35-year-old I know. I say, let's just redefine geriatric. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't know this about you, Julie. I did a little bit of research before joining and my girlfriend, Emily, is also an SLP. Oh, that's exciting. And is she our yeah. peer as well? Is she also a geriatric millennial? Uh, no, she was born in 1990. Oh, she's a young one. Okay. She's very young. Yeah, she can probably <laughs> hear me upstairs right now. Does she work in Milton? No, she works for a school board currently, but she's going back to school in September. Oh, what to take what? To do a PhD and precisely the same. Oh, wow. Good for her. So you did some research on us. We did tons of research on you, and we are binging you on YouTube and stuff with our boys. They're eight and nine, and it was so fun watching them being so interested in you and your story and watching them absorb the lessons that you have learned. And so we're excited to get into that with you today. Yeah, I'm thrilled. This is great. And how's training going, Lowell? How are things? Oh, so good. Yeah. I race with Ed Veal, so I remember meeting yeah. you last year, 2020, at our last race the world championships of track. So those might've been my last high fives. Yeah. My most recent high fives. Isn't that crazy? That seems yeah. kind of like forever ago. And you should know that because we've met you in person, I now overstate our relationship. You're, uh, you're oh, a friend. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the it's, same page. Especially after not meeting anybody else in person for a year, right? Yeah, like, we're like the last people. We're old friends now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're old friends. We shared like open air food, like finger food together. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised it wasn't a super spreader event because totally it was just like, oh, hummus. Yeah, I'll just dip my finger in that hummus. <laughs> and there were yeah. people from all the countries there. Yeah, yeah. Was Crazy. it February though? Was it February 2020? End of January, beginning of February. Yeah. Wow. What yep. a time. What a time. Seems a like a lifetime life. ago. Yeah. Two comments. First, training. You asked me a question. <laughs> I've doubled down on training, right? We talk about these opportunities where we don't have to travel. We don't have to have all of these other things in our lives. So my training has been more focused than ever. So I'm coming out of 2020, the pandemic stronger than ever. Ed and I are just, we're on fire. We're hungry, ready to race. The unfortunate aspect with that is all of our qualifying races were canceled. And then our last one in Belgium, our team decided not to send any athletes. So the event happened, but we weren't able to attend with the team. So our official selection did not happen. 
So now it's coming up to all those kind of so that's too bad. maybes to get to Tokyo. But if not, we refocus yeah. this weird time and we're going to aim for Paris 2024. It's in like two and a half years. I know. So. <laughs> that's what I said. It's like actually super close. And by that time, our boys, they're in French immersion right now. So they're already pretty much bilingual, especially the older one. And they'll be that much older. Like they can pretty much take on translating and navigating and I'll just kick back and let them take the lead. Nice. And as somebody who's competed in four Olympic games, you know that they just keep coming. They do. Yeah, for sure. You just always have to focus on the long-term goal that uh, you set for yourself and your ambition. You know, your ambition wasn't to be a Paralympian in the next couple of months. It was to be like a lifetime athlete and to be a competitor and a a legend on Team Canada. So that takes time, obviously. No, but it's not over yet. Like, fingers crossed, right? Tokyo 2021 is still happening. Fingers crossed. It's been a really, really tough year to be an athlete or a coach or a sport administrator. But I mean, it's been a tough year to be anything, right? It's been a tough year to be a teacher or a parent or grandparent. It's sucked for everybody. We've had to learn how to pivot and then also learn how to deal with uncertainty. And I think that's something that athletes are quite good at in general. Hopefully mm-hmm. we, we have to mm-hmm. build some of those, what races, what time our health. And we just are in this unique time of, of uncertainty right now. Yeah, no doubt. Well, fingers crossed for more certainty. Canada's vaccinating a higher percentage of our population every day than any country in the world. I think we should be proud of that. Yeah. People will say, oh, we started a little bit late or it would have been good to get like more shots in arms in January and February. Like, I think every country would say that regardless <laughs> of the momentum. Everybody wanted to get as many into arms as quickly as possible. Yeah. There's no single country <laughs> that wasn't in a big hurry. Yeah. But I think what we have to recognize is like in any race, there's uh, a couple of checkpoints and a finish line. And the most important checkpoint is that 75% mark, which we're coming up to very soon, I think. And that's a really relevant one. And we got to focus on the finish line, not all these irrelevant little like, oh, but who was at 10% first and who was at 20% first? Like, mm-hmm. let's yeah. just focus on the big picture and recognize that every country is in a different situation. I think we just all have to be positive. And I've just been really focusing before I hit send on any tweet or post. I'm like, wait, is this positive? Is this constructive? Yeah. Am yeah. I actually doing a service to the conversation or am I just being you know, provocative. And uh, I think we all have a responsibility to our communities right now to, to maintain some, some positivity and uh, optimism. Amazing. Well said. <laughs> we have so many questions and we know we don't have very long with you. So it's going to hit you with some. When we were having the kids watch the show, they were watching some of your TED Talks online. So anybody who wants to go check out more out of Vancouver didn't check that out. You've got lots of information out there. There was a slow motion video of you paddling. And my son was like, is that in slow motion? And I said, no. He just paddles really slow. <laughs> I wouldn't have done very well as an athlete had I, had I paddled in slow motion. I didn't make any of those videos. I don't really use YouTube very much, but it's amazing how much content is out there. And the slow-mo videos were probably done by somebody who was teaching technique. And that's quite humbling for me because I learned how to paddle using video from other people and myself. It's a very technical sport and there's no perfect way to do it. It's very personal. It is a lesson in biomechanics to figure out how to move a boat forward as efficiently and effectively and as quickly as possible. And you've got to kind of work with the tools that you've got. But I used to watch a lot of video of a few different guys, one who was six foot seven and another who was five foot eight. I knew that I wasn't either of those heights. I fall somewhere in between, but I really tried to get as much as I could. And when I was watching video, it was on a Commodore 64 monitor with a VCR on a video cassette that was worn out and it had already been converted from Betamax or the like the European version <laughs> to VHS or whatever. And like it didn't have a very good picture, but I could still make out the two athletes that I wanted to copy. And at the Canoe Club, we had a Commodore 64 monitor hooked up to one of these old VCRs. And I used to watch it before getting out on the water and then practice in the mirror 
with a broomstick. Wow. So, That's you know, so times cool. changed yeah. and now, you know, you can do video on your cell phone. Yeah. Now athletes leave practice looking at their cell phone, watching slow-mo video that somebody took earlier that day. And like in the last years of my training, that video was always done with a very large, like the largest available iPad so that they could just flip it around and show it to you from the boat. So you could do real-time wow. stuff. Like, you know, you'd stop paddling, look at it and then try to correct your technique. Wow. And the challenge was, was always looking at our video on the water before that with these tiny little camcorder <laughs> screens. Yeah. I wear very strong contact lenses and I, I always had a difficult time focusing on that tiny little screen. Oh, yeah. It was a real blessing when they came out with those larger format iPads so that we yeah. could do that real-time video analysis. Wow. No All in high def. You can see every vein now before it was that blurry <laughs> Commodore pixelated. So, yeah. But there's a lot that actually you can see that you couldn't see before. It's true. Like yeah. how the water reacts to the angle that you put your paddle in at. And oh, cool. even like little things. And there's just so many little aspects. You're talking about winning races by a centimeter. Yeah. It's a thousand meters. And sometimes you just win by how effectively you lean back on the finish line. Wow. Just the tiny Yeah. Things. It's like an election. <laughs> sometimes it comes down to five <laughs> or six votes. <laughs> Absolutely. Very, very close. So your early story, you start with this line, champions wanted. You became a champion later, but where did that line come from? And let's go to where all good stories start at the beginning. This good story starts with an ad in the local newspaper. The newspaper in Oakville is called the Oakville Beaver. It's the same syndicated newspaper chain as the one in Milton, which is called the Canadian Champion. So it's kind of ironic, but two very Canadian names of the newspapers. My mom was like any other kind of suburban mom. She was single. She was raising two boys in community housing. Great place to grow up, but we didn't have unlimited resources or anything like that. Also, just want to mention that my dad was always on the scene and he's a great dad, very, very supportive, but there's lots of challenges associated with raising two boys, both my dad and my mom on their own. My mom just needed a solution for after school care. You know, I was in that 13 year old category, which is sort of too old to get a babysitter, uh, certainly, but maybe too young to take care of yourself after school, too. I babysat a 12 year old boy when I was 12. Yeah. Super awkward. Mostly because his parents didn't trust him with his younger sister. So it was mostly for that, but still super awkward. Anyways, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you get it, right? Yeah. You're not an adult yet. You still yeah. need a little bit of mentorship or supervision. My mom just wanted to make sure that I was making good choices and I wasn't. So, you know, she's right. But she saw this ad in the newspaper and it said future champions wanted. It was a Burl Oak Canoe Club recruiting ad. She literally called the canoe club and said, hey, I don't have a champion for you. I've got possibly a future convict. And uh, if you would take him <laughs> off my hands, then I'd be very grateful. And he says he likes kayaking. So can I bring him down? And they said, sure. We're not turning anybody away. And I went down to the canoe club a couple of days later. There was an open house. I met some people, met some coaches, met some athletes, met some Olympians. And my mom asked if I was interested in going out on the water and trying it out. And I said, sure. I was bored, honestly, like most kids in suburbia. I didn't have anything to do. And I think that's a story that a lot of kids say, like they go home from school and they flick on the TV or they open their phones and they just stare at it for like hours. And that's what I was doing. I wasn't particularly good at like basketball or soccer. And those are the sports people were playing in the community, like after school. And I wasn't very interested in them. I had a lot of interests, but they were all kind of weird. Like I liked punk rock and I liked going to shows and yeah, I liked graffiti and stuff like that. And that wasn't like constructive or <laughs> I was just getting myself into trouble. So my mom sent me down to the canoe club. One of the things about kayaking is you can't really get into too much trouble in a kayak because both your hands are quite busy on the paddle. So that whole idle time is the devil's work or whatever for teenagers. Uh, that was true for sure. And the canoe club gave me a lot of direction, you know, took me off the couch and put me in a boat, told me to go straight, told me to go fast. And I got lots of great male role models down at the canoe club. And my dad continued to be a big part of my paddling career and very, very supportive and going to regattas on the weekend. And he bought me my first kayak. 
that future champions wanted ad might have been a little bit of a red herring for my mom like she didn't know what to think of it but i took the challenge seriously and i went down there with an earnest willingness to try something new and to develop a new skill and it changed my life it was the best decision i ever made yeah we don't know the power of early experiences until we sometimes look back on that and there's a couple relationships i'm interested in and one of the relationships is with your parents are there any messages that you've learned from them that you now i mean you're you're 40 right this is like not yet well almost yeah i'm almost 40 (laughs) that's a very important distinction (laughs) as you reflect back as this 40 year old ish version of yourself What do you see the lessons that you have learned from mom and dad? First and foremost, my mom used to pick me up from practice and ask me every day if I was having fun still. And that was even the case, like, you know, when I was trying out for the national team and everything. It's got to be fun. And it's got to, you know, put a smile on your face. I mean, there's a difference between being fun every single second and being net fun. And like kayaking was net fun for sure. There was hard days, but those (laughs) were like times for lessons, Mm -hmm. not times for, you know, just goofing around and having a great time. But it was always fun. Like it was always the place that I wanted to go and training was always the thing that I wanted to be doing. So people always used to say like, oh, wow, your dedication is so impressive or whatever, but it's not actually hard to dedicate yourself to something when it's what you want to do every day. Like I literally got excited about getting out in the water every day because it was just a great way to spend time. Mm -hmm. When I compared it to the alternative of meeting up for cigarettes in the high school parking lot, like what a waste of time that was, right? But getting out on the water and trying something new and practicing and Mm -hmm. getting stronger every single day, that was like a really good use of a couple of hours a day. Mm -hmm. It being fun had a really phenomenal impact on who I was and my mom's reminder that it had to be. That was the only thing that she cared about was that it was enjoyable. And then from my dad, very, very similar, he would kind of ask me if it was a good investment and if it was a good use of time. And I always really thought that it was. And he he wanted to ensure that I wasn't neglecting other areas of my life. He was very interested in the reality that one of the main reasons I was kayaking was because I wanted to get my tuition paid for because I didn't want to get a summer job like, you know, in a restaurant or anything. I ended up having a summer job anyway, but enough to worry about making enough money for tuition because I, I got it covered through Canada's Athlete Assistance Program. But my dad was always very, very insistent that I was thinking about the long term and the big picture. And uh, he's very supportive in that regard as well and just making sure that I was well taken care of. Even when I started attracting sponsorships and that, he was never overbearing, didn't try to be controlling or anything. He just wanted to make sure that I was making good choices. Awesome. I think focusing on the fun aspects of it and making sure that you're making all the right choices. And I mean, making the right choices also means there's plenty of room to make mistakes. Because one of the things that my dad reminded me of is that when I'd come home from a race with a gold medal, we would not have too many lessons to learn. Yeah. Whereas if I'd come home with a silver or worse, there was always plenty to learn from that. So there's a constructive aspect to loss that I learned how to embrace from my dad, not to suggest that my dad <laughs> wasn't a successful guy he is, but he definitely knows the value and failure. Well, awesome lessons. There has been another mother in your life, mother earth, mother nature. What have you learned from her? What have you learned from water? Wow. That's pretty deep. The water's, <laughs> you know, not just the water being deep, but kayaking is a great sport because unlike a lot of others, you know, it really does connect you to nature. Obviously, every sport has its inherent qualities and aspects that are unique and great, but kayaking really, really does connect you to nature. There's a story that I used to tell with respect to how connected and interconnected we were as athletes. There was a golf course close to where we used to paddle in Florida in the winter. And one year they changed their pesticides. Uh, This is something that I learned afterwards. 
they changed their pesticides and then there was a lot of rain and there was a lot of runoff and that created a huge fish and algae kill. So there was a lot of pesticide in the water, obviously, which made the plant stuff and algae grow. And then it all died off really quickly. Even some of like the smaller mammals died. Like we saw a couple of dead manatees and dolphins and stuff. So it was just a very Mm -hmm. kind of unhealthy water system. And it was a direct result of the change and lack of ecological approach of this local golf course or many golf courses probably. And that algae kill created emulsification on the water. And that changed how we paddled a little bit. It created like a glide differential in our boat. So there were like shoulder injuries and problems with muscle tears and stuff. Because when you go through this weird patch of water, athletes were paddling differently and it was like throwing them off a little bit. It was really bizarre. Like that water had no surface tension. So it changed a lot. And then when all that algae died off, it created that emulsified crap on the surface and everybody got upper respiratory tract infections. Wow. I did a big deep dive on this because I contacted the local environmental protection association and they told us all of this and it wasn't like a political thing. They just told us that and we're talking like 15, 16 years ago, they just told us like what happened in the waterways and how they've got to go back and rethink all of the pesticides. Cause they had this huge, it was an ecological disaster wow. that had an impact on our health. Right. And that was just over a couple of weeks. So you can imagine the impact of runoff into waterways and people who train on that every day. You know, imagine if you're getting your food from those waterways and, you know, imagine that there's that biomagnification. So smaller little animals pick up a little bit of those pollutant and toxic chemicals and then bigger animals eat all of those. So can't eat the salmon from your local river or if you're thinking about the water that animals drink, water that my dog drank yesterday when we were on a little hike and going Mm -hmm. through the creek just has an impact on everybody's health and thinking that Mm. when we're talking in environmentalist terms we're talking about just icebergs and ice caps and rainforests and polar bears we're really not we're talking about our own health too and adopting better practices and healthier habits and better behaviors and better legislation from a government perspective as well actually protects all of us Mm. my dad is close to 70 he's doing really well but he has parkinson's and one of the reasons he has parkinson's his doctors suspect is because from a very young age he picked tobacco on farms as a job for probably like a quarter an hour or something like that and he was exposed from a very young age to a lot of pesticides so his doctors suspect that that might have had an impact on his developing parkinson's disease later in life we're all connected we all breathe the same air. Yeah, got to take care of this earth, eh? Yeah, no, and we don't. We do a terrible job, uh, like an absolutely terrible job. And it has a direct impact on our longevity and our livelihoods. And no, we definitely have to do a better job. Hopefully in 100 years, we'll have it figured out. But I think it's a, it's a slow learning curve. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so you, you've trained in Florida. Where else did you train in the months that it was too cold to train in Canada? And is that all 12 of the months? <laughs> Because the water is cold in Canada. <laughs> yeah, the water is always cold in Canada, but no, we train in Canada a lot. But then oftentimes during the summer, I'd go and seek training groups that were more competitive. And th- those are often in Europe. So I spent a lot of time out of Canada. And that's actually one of the reasons why I decided to get involved in politics is how much I love Canada and how earnestly I want to ensure that Canada continues to be one of the best countries in the world to live in. And one of the greatest gifts that canoeing and kayaking gave me was the opportunity to travel and the opportunity to see other places and other meet other people and develop that insight and perspective on who we are as Canadians and how that's unique and why it's great and how we can improve. Mm. I'm not an expert on any of those things, but having traveled to 70 countries or so around the world and and lived in five or six, I think if you pay rent and go to a grocery store, then you're living there. You're not just visiting. Mm. (laughs) That's sort of like my barometer for, am I a visitor or am I a (laughs) resident? But when you go to like, you know, Australia for four months and pay, sign a lease and pay for rent, I think you're getting more than just your feet wet. We love that story about you just 
on your own volition going to Australia to try to learn from other kayakers. Did you spend more time in Australia other than that stint? Yeah, I went to Australia probably four times and I was in New Zealand as well for a training camp. Where in New Zealand? We trained in Auckland and then I went to, is it Wellington for a race? Okay. There's a really small place we went to for, for a race. Were you there in 2008 and nine by chance? No. Okay. No. We lived there in 2008 and nine. Oh, no kidding. Cool. No, it's a beautiful place. It's amazing. I would love to go back. I did my first marathon there, the Auckland Marathon, and ran around the inlet there where you would have been kayaking, I imagine. It's just, it's a gorgeous city. Yeah, I love it there. It's super unique. I was actually training in Australia and all the guys that I was training with on the Gold Coast were going to Perth for a race that I wasn't invited to. It was just an Australian race. And it was also the New Zealand Championships weekend. So I went and raced the New Zealand Championships while they went and raced the Aussie Championships. <laughs> we went about the same distance, I think. <laughs> but it was just a great experience. I got to travel a lot in the winter months. I usually would leave late November and come back just before Christmas and then leave again around my birthday, like end of January. And usually cross-country ski and run and lift and swim a lot in January and then February get back on the water. And then I kind of realized that that was something that was kind of arbitrarily determined the schedule just by Christmas and weather in Canada and wanting to be home over the holidays. And that was probably having a negative impact on the cycle that I was trying to maintain through that time. And when I looked at what guys were doing in Australia, and New Zealand, it made more sense to take a little bit more time off after our August racing season. So like take a full September off, maybe even a couple days or weeks in October as well. And do some different training and then get back on the water like in earnest in November and then do like big blocks through December, January, February, March. And that's what we're lacking. And I think that's still an issue in, in Canada, but they're starting to travel to BC more and train more throughout the winter. But it's, it's challenging. Like you said, the water gets really cold and there's days where there's snow in Victoria now and the weather definitely makes it challenging to be a summer athlete in Canada. No kidding. So how many kilometers do you think you have paddled? And I know the term is paddled for you, right? Not road. We were schooled by Marnie McBean. Yeah. <laughs> now I know a few more things. You're a paddler. How many kilometers total do you think you paddled in your kayaking career? It's a good question. I've made a couple of kind of guesses. We didn't use like a Strava or anything that kept track of everything perfectly, but I have a lot of written records. And the number that I came up with was almost 120,000. Wow. So that represents about three trips around the earth at the equator oh. Um, oh, in a geez. kayak and kayaks aren't very fast right like the fastest i could go was like 15 20 kilometers an hour and even like the fastest hour that i ever did well you'd be interested in like this i know that cyclists do like an hour distance hour thing power, quite yeah. often especially on the track yeah yeah and our power as well we didn't have like a power meter and it's tough to measure in a kayak because like there's a lot of factors we don't have like a crankshaft right where you yeah. can just measure yeah. output but like the hour distance records on a track right we that's pretty common how fast yeah, can you go yeah. and, and something that's pretty standard? Yeah, we tried to do something similar in kayaking where you'd have to do a distance in an hour and you tried to do it somewhere where you either only turned once. So you'd have a 50% mark where you'd turn and come back. If there was any current or headwind or whatever, like then you'd try to balance it out a little bit or you do it on a very flat day somewhere and guarantee no current or wind or you do it on a fixed loop, mm -hmm. which is harder because you slow down a lot when you turn in a kayak. Mm. Obviously, you have to slow down to zero <laughs> and you, know, you got to come back. I mean, in that distance that you want to try to achieve unless you're doing large circles. And we got over 15 kilometers. I think I did it two or three times. But doing 15 kilometers in an hour was really kind of groundbreaking in our sport. Like, I think there's probably less than 10 guys who have done that. Wow. And so that just gives you an idea of how slow it is, right? Whereas yeah. I, if I go for a bike ride, like I can easily do 30 kilometers in an hour if I don't have to stop. And like in a group, you could probably do 40. Yeah. I'm just trying to picture how many kilometers per hour 
we could go on a kayak, like maybe 0. 0.05. No, you go like five it? or six, five oh. or six kilometers an hour. Yeah. If you paddled in a good <laughs> boat, like it wasn't too heavy. No, no. You, anybody can paddle five or six kilometers. Here. You know, it was humbling when we were in New Zealand, we were on a double kayak and I was working so hard. There were waves. What was it? What's it called when they're all the waves and the current? Anyways, it was bumpy and hard. And uh, I was working Chop, so hard. Yeah. And, yeah. Choppy. It was choppy. Thank you, Adam. It was choppy water. And so I was like, oh, I just need a break. And so I just stopped to take a break. And we didn't slow down at all. <laughs> well, then it means you're uh, <laughs> maybe maybe you're just dipping. It's called lily dipping. When you just put the paddle in the water, and you're not actually pulling any back. I'm, I'm impressed you guys went in a double kayak. Sometimes people call those divorce kayaks because they often result in a fight. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad that you guys survived. We also survived the amazing race together. I think Lowell is a different sort of a unicorn. He's just very easygoing. <laughs> and Julie's piloted the tandem as well. And we've gone on century rides and multi-day rides riding in a kayak and tandem amazing race they can either bond you or they can break you and so lucky enough for julie and i we we bond great i don't think emily and i are getting out into a yep. double kayak anytime soon but we do go for bike rides we ran together yesterday so. oh that's fun stay together stay together right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. you participated in singles and doubles did you do fours too yeah i raced at all three at the world championships I think I competed in almost every event at the World Championships. I definitely did all three in singles. Okay, I never raced K2 200, which is the shortest event at the World Championships when I was going. But I did race K4 200, which was sort of an exhibition event at the World Championships. And I raced the 5,000, which is the longest event at the World Championships, which is like a 20-minute race. What do you prefer, the longer or the shorter? My favorite event was the 1,000-meter K1, which is the one I went to the Olympics in four times. The 500 was my best event, arguably, but it was only at two of the Olympics that I attended. They took it out for London and Rio, unfortunately. Shoot. I liked the 1,000 better because it's more strategic, a little bit more tactical. But I think my best event would have been seven or 800 meters, just mm. based on how I lined up against my competitors. <laughs> I could go very, very fast for three minutes. And typically in the 1,000, it would take me three and a half minutes. And oftentimes, it'd be like the last 10 or 20 seconds that were the most difficult. Yeah. yeah, I think I did almost every event. I certainly did all the kayaking that I wanted to do. I still like getting out, but it's pretty recreational. Yeah. So which Olympics was your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Oh, yeah. Athens, because I won. Okay, yeah. And okay, which outfit? Which Olympic outfit was your favorite? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, it's all about the outfit. <laughs> I was a bit pickier by the time we raced in 2016, and I designed my own and decided not to wear what the team was wearing just because I didn't really like it. Bold. And I was picky about what I was. It wasn't how it looked. It was how it felt and how it moved on my seat and everything. And like the durability of it, like I found that the shorts that we were getting from the provider were just wearing out and everything. I guess my favorite outfit was in Rio. But like in terms of the the stuff that we wore off the water that were given to us, mm. Beijing was horrendous. It was the worst. Athens oh, yeah. stuff was good and I still wear some of it. It's just like really comfortable sweats. Oh, nice. Right now I'm wearing a pair of shorts from the Pan Ams, which are really good. Oh, cool. Lowell's wearing a Pan Am shirt too. Yeah, that's a great one. I love that gold. Yeah. Pan Ams are doing well with their clothes. <laughs> yeah, people always love talking about the kit. That jean jacket was obviously a big part of my campaign as well. So I should give a little shout out to that HBC jean jacket with all the patches. Oh, the one from London that you were campaigning. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. Not necessarily looking forward to an election. I'll definitely be ready when it comes, but I am looking forward to getting the jean jacket back in the daily rotation. Of life? Yeah, I like throwing that thing on over top of a hoodie. You know. 
I don't hate wearing a suit, but if I don't have to wear a suit, then I never am. Oh, yeah. Like, I see people on Zoom, like, you know, 8.30 in the morning on a Monday, and I'm like, what meetings do you have today? Why are you wearing a tie? And they're like, well, it's just how I dress every single day. I'm like, what? Oh. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't imagine that either. <laughs> yeah. No, I like a solid jean jacket, too. I like the London one better, just because I prefer the patches and the sort of, like, camp vibe to the yeah. spray paint stuff, but that's just me, and I'm almost 40, as you guys have reminded me twice, so um, <laughs> maybe that's why. We like to keep our guests humble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a very young 40. Thanks. So Adam, you've lived most of your life on the water, paddling, chasing this Olympic dream with lots of success. There's lots of highs, there's lots of lows in chasing at that level. Millimeters, seconds, points of seconds that get you to a gold medal, a silver, or missing a qualifier. So there's these ups and these downs. And now you've moved away from this Olympic journey and you're into politics, and I'd like to move to there and speak a bit about that. But there comes this big moment of letting go of something that once held such big passion for you. I'd like to speak a little bit about this important time as athletes. We chase this dream, this games, the medals for so long. And then what is that transition like? The grief, the loss, the letting go. And is this like a graduation, not a funeral idea? Or was there a bit of that loss and grief that you experienced? Yeah, it's not like a graduation or a funeral. It's like quitting sport and you just have to treat it for what it is. There are aspects that are sad and there are days that are hard. There are a lot of aspects that are positive and uplifting and you know optimistic as well. It's a real mixed bag and it's different for everybody. But what was important to me was that I leave on my own terms and leave when I wanted to and not be sort of forced out. I wanted to do my last year the way I wanted to do it. And I wanted to work with the coaches that I was working well with and continue to capitalize on the good relationships that I had built over the course of my 20 years on the water. Obviously leaving when I left in 2016, like I didn't leave on the highest point of my career. And that, that was a choice that I made though, right? Like I knew in 2011, when I crossed the finish line, three and a half seconds ahead of my competition, I could have quit that day and said, Hey, I won my last race, but that didn't mean that I didn't compete in the last race, right? Like I didn't do the last race that was on my agenda. When I quit, I wanted to know that I was done for good and I wasn't going to do a comeback in four years. And I wasn't going to like try to reestablish myself as one of the best kayakers in the world. I don't need that. Like I had my time on the water and I'm really grateful for all of that. I had everything I ever needed. I achieved all of my goals. I didn't win every race that I set out to, obviously, but like who did that, right? Except for Usain Bolt, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we get to do it on our own terms. I mean, that's also a luxury. You know, some people get injured or training's not going as well as they had hoped and they just don't qualify for the last team. So I know it was a bit of a privilege to be able to leave on my own terms, but I'm grateful for that too. And moving on to something else was important as well, because I definitely wanted to be pulled a little bit. Like I didn't want to get pushed out of my sport, but I wanted a reason to leave because I wanted there to be something else. And I recognized that there were a lot of other things and I wasn't leaving sport for one particular opportunity. I was leaving sport for the many opportunities that existed mm -hmm. still. And I didn't want to stay in my sport just because it was the most comfortable thing or the yeah. easiest thing to continue to do. Because in terms of like earning a living and doing what I love and not growing, like staying in kayaking from 2016 to 2020, 2021 would have been the easiest thing. Like the easiest thing for me to do would have been to go to a fifth Olympics. Mm -hmm. I think I could have just done another four or five years and stuck with it and maintained my fitness and, you know, maybe gotten an elbow surgery and just hammered. And I don't want to do what's easy. I did kayaking because it's hard. I went to the Olympics because mm -hmm. it's hard. Yeah. I aimed for the top because it's difficult and it was challenging. And I didn't want to go to a fifth Olympics just because not very many people have. And coming in ninth in Rio was a good little wake up, was like a good little, hey, like you trained really hard for this. You prepared perfectly, but there's still eight guys in the world who can kick your butt. So if that's who you want to be, like struggling to be top 10, then you can always probably be top 10. <laughs> you know, it wasn't enough for me, though. 
I didn't quit because I wasn't winning anymore. Like I posted the second fastest time in Rio. I'm still in really good shape. You know, if we did a workout, if it was 10 by 1,000, I think I would have won six of them against anybody. But that's not the way it works. It's about one-offs and all these young guys, it was their turn. It was their dream. Their dreams were there. When you say that eight other guys could kick your butt, do you mean by like 0.01 of a second? (laughs) Yeah, like some of them beat me by that much and... Every race is different, right? I didn't care too much that, like, the B final. I won the B final, and my time was faster than most of the guys in the A final. All but one, but (laughs) the wind can change, and it's a tactical race. There's lots of issues there, but I just knew that I was in the same category as them. I didn't want to be on the water every day and train really hard because I wanted to win every single race. I just wanted to be among the best kayakers in the world, and I knew that I still was, and it was an opportunity for me to go out on that high note. So sometimes our setbacks can be setups. The adversity becomes our advantage, right? Those obstacles become opportunities. What has that been for you in your life? Well, I think obstacles and opportunities can be the same thing. Not necessarily every single one fits into both categories, but it's a matter of perspective and a matter of outlook, I think. And if you're willing to see things that come your way as opportunities for growth, and if you're willing to embrace change, then I think you're well-suited for this wild world we live in, Mm -hmm. particularly in 2021, where who knows what's going to happen next week. If you told me in 2018 that in 2021 a haircut was going to be illegal, then uh, (laughs) I might have invested in a better home haircut solution. But um, (laughs) there's a lot of things that have changed this year that Mm -hmm. were outside of our even wildest imaginations. So I think being able to pivot, being you mentioned pivoting earlier, it's Mm -hmm. a great word. Being agile, being willing to roll with the punches a bit. You got into politics at a crazy time. Like you basically just got in and all of a sudden the world changes. Did you have political aspirations before when you were younger? I mean, I won't say that I didn't because in 2008, I ran to be on the Canadian Athletes Commission, the COC Athletes Commission, and it was because I wanted to make a difference. So, I mean, on a different level, I had political aspirations then. It was a political position. It was an advocacy position. It was a a role that I pursued. And and then as soon as I was elected, I accepted the nomination to be vice chair. And then when the chair, his term ran out, I took on the chair position. And for about six years, I traded off, depending on if it was a winter or summer sport athlete, we allowed each other to chair only when we were in the afterglow of the Olympics, Mm -hmm. not in the lead up kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was a really great position that I got to learn a lot from. I was on the board of directors for about seven years and uh, and learned a tremendous amount. So at different times in my life, I've had different types of political aspirations, but crossing the finish line in Rio and just kind of basking in that gratitude of being Canadian and being on Team Canada and wanting to make sure that Canada continues to be the best country in the world to live in was really what underlined and bold for me and yeah. underscored why I decided to get involved in federal politics rather mm-hmm. than municipal or provincial or at a school board level or whatever. Yeah. It was because it really is about Team Canada for me. Yeah. So what platform did you run on to flip Milton from blue to red? And can you come to Alberta and traipse your way around and do the same thing here? <laughs> <laughs> Alberta is the most challenging place in Canada for that, for sure. But I ran a very positive campaign. I knocked on doors and listened to people. I wasn't there to preach or to tell people who I was or you know what my plans for the town were. I've always said, my plan is to listen. My plan is to hear your ideas, hear your concerns, make sure that your voice is being heard in Ottawa. And that's what I've continued to do over the last year and a half. It's not about my ideas. I didn't get elected because I think I have the best ideas or the best plan or some long-term strategic initiative that's going to change the world. I think that if we work together and we're willing to recognize that, yeah, there's good ideas on the left and there's good ideas 
idea than the right. And it's a matter of having great listening skills and being empathetic and being an advocate. I'm not a hardcore partisan. I think Mm -hmm. the liberals have been right most of the time. There's been times when we've been wrong. There's times when we've gotten things right. There's been times we've gotten things wrong. And I think that's true of every single government in the world. Mm -hmm. There's no perfect prime minister. There's no perfect MP. We're all just human beings. And Mm -hmm. if we're humble and good listeners and hardworking, we're willing to accept that sometimes we're going to make mistakes and we're going to work towards making as few as possible and making good outcomes for Canadians. I think that's what an MP is supposed to do. Pick up the phone when it rings and do the work. That's pretty much all we can ask for of you people, hey? (laughs) I guess so. I think you're approaching that in a really positive way. I'm learning from the best. I think our view of uh, what a politician is in Canada might be skewed by a couple of bad articles or a bad example every once in a while. I just saw that Amarjeet Sohi is running for mayor of, of Edmonton. Who knows what our favorite mayor, and then she's, he's purple by design. So I think that's always smart. I really like Nenshi. He's a great guy. We hugged him. He gave us one of our clues on The Amazing Race, and we hugged him. We like just ran up, and we just assumed that he... <laughs> he wanted a hug? And that everybody else was yeah. hugging him, too. And we were the only ones that did. I don't know why I assumed Nenshi gives good hugs. I, I can attest to that, for sure. And no, he's a good example of a guy who believes in listening, and yeah. uh, there's good ideas on the left, and there's good ideas on the right, and it's about right mm. place, right time for the great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned Fred Penner at one point in one of your talks. You have this beautiful location, or did, at Algonquin Park. And we have a little segment that we have in homage to Fred Penner. So we're going to do a couple terms, or the word bird. So here is, from our youth, Fred Penner. Word bird! Okay, partner, send down the word. Thanks, buddy. Oh, see what the word is today? See what the word is today. today. So from Fred Penner, from our youth, I'm just going to send over a couple words to you and let me know what they mean to you. So easy one, maybe. Perfection. Impossible. Serve. Listen, empathize, advocate, dedicate. Hard work. Results. Inclusion. Mandatory. Mm. I like that. Executive capacity. That's one that I used a lot in those corporate talks I used to do. <laughs> you can unpack that one. We'll... Yeah, I think I might have to. Executive capacity is a word that I, or a couple words that I might use to describe a lot of things. But it's an important skill to develop. And it's really important that you know when to push down the gas pedal. That's executive capacity to me. And it's important. There's times where you should sit back and listen. There's times where you should speak up. There's times where you should do some research. And there's times where you should share what you've learned. And I think that's all about that executive capacity is knowing when to apply which of those skills. And right now you are in a role where you are working for inclusion and working towards sport and culture. What is your role now in politics and what are you hoping to achieve in the next couple of years? Well, I've got a couple of roles. First and most importantly, I'm the member of parliament for Milton. So I work for my neighbors and uh, that's a busy job. Uh, I just hired a bunch of great young interns that are going to help achieve some great things this summer and make sure that we're staying well connected to our community. Mm. And then on the parliamentary secretarial side, I've got two roles. There's the first one, which is the parliamentary secretary for diversity and inclusion in youth. So that's working with all the great community serving organizations across the country that are serving our diverse communities working towards better inclusion and making sure that youth are involved in those decisions. And there's hundreds, if not a thousand of those organizations across the country. Yeah. My other role, which takes up a lot of time right now, and it's um, one of the main reasons I got involved in public service, I don't mind saying, is uh, as the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Heritage for Sport. And that's where I get to work on what I learned in school and what I learned in my life, which is that sport, physical activity, and recreation 
have great utility in helping us develop socially, helping us to develop mentally and physically, protecting our health, protecting our communities, ensuring that we've got a great country in one, two, five, 10, and 25 years. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. We support you and your work from way out here, <laughs> even though we can't really be involved directly with yours, but we support no, it. No, is it the same country? We live in the same country. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, just because we're separated by a couple thousand <laughs> kilometers doesn't mean that we're not working <laughs> for the same thing and the same goals. Yeah. And we can't let our geographical distance get in the way of collaboration. You know what? COVID-19 has messed a lot of things up and it totally sucks. One of the things that it has done is taught us how to be in touch over great distances without having mm. to get on planes. Yeah. And as much as I'm really excited to do less Zoom in 2022 and beyond, I think it's going to be part of our work and it can be something that we look forward to and mm-hmm. something that can keep us home with our families when we don't want to travel, mm-hmm. yeah. which has great implications for family-friendly politics. And it also has great implications for the environment and climate change because yeah. flying is bad for the environment. So there's some silver linings. Yeah. It's been a sad year for sure and really, really tough for small businesses and families and seniors and lots of other people too. But got to look at what's positive as well. And it was really nice connecting with you guys over the Zoom. And I'm inspired by your podcast and I'm going to listen to a couple more episodes. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, we look forward to when yours is out. And also next time we're in Milton again with Lowell's racing, then hopefully we get to connect again. Yeah, come there often for training. So hopefully we'll get a follow-up to the pre-COVID high five. We get a post-COVID high five and (laughs) keep going. Thank you for serving our country. Thank you for serving your community and for continuing to move us. And even the messages that you've shared in your TEDx talks that were on YouTube, like our kids, I'm not getting when I say, they were watching with interest. And I think they really took stuff away about if they want something to happen, they have to put their foot on the gas pedal and kind of make it happen. And all those lessons that you had, they were actually listening, eight and nine years old. So thank you for that. (laughs) Well, thank you guys. And thanks for being great parents. Thanks for being great ambassadors for sport, physical activity and recreation in Canada. Thanks for getting the word out. Your positive message is making a big difference in your community and across our country. And Lowell, all the best, man. Awesome. Thanks. Thank Say you so hi much. to Emily, my fellow SLP. <laughs> I will, for sure. You guys have a lot to talk about next time we're yeah, in Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Yeah, bring her along. <laughs> okay. All right. okay, see you later. Take care. Bye, Bye. guys. Bye. Thanks. And there he is, from podiums to politics, Adam Vancouverton. The one and only. <laughs> a fun conversation. Very easy to talk to. Yeah, he's a great person to speak to. He has a wide range of experience in life. He's got a lot of passions is now in politics, so he's working towards making change happen in a very practical way and trying to represent the needs of people around him all the way back to his early childhood and these lessons that he learned from his parents of having fun and balance and trying to make sure that he's moving forward in a productive way in life. And then what I really enjoy too is his connection to nature, connection to taking care of of the earth that we have here and, and really enjoying it. He's very well-spoken and reasonably minded. He's a good listener. Mm-hmm. In his TED Talks, are available. We've referred to them a couple times, but if you want to hear some more, um, he speaks about this idea of executive capacity, about wanting to take on control over things in your life, not wait for things to happen. And when it's time, put the gas pedal down and make it happen. Don't wait for other things. And I often use that in therapy. We, we have this idea of action leads to motivation. Sometimes we are just waiting around for motivation to fall from the sky and and we're waiting and wondering why things are happening to other people and not for us. And and that mindset of, I need to have some agency in my life and move forward is really important. He also speaks in the TED Talk, we didn't have time to speak about it today, but this idea about youthful vigor versus veteran wisdom. And it's interesting to see how he lived that out in his life. There's this young, vigorous guy just pushing and and winning medals and, and now kind of slowing down and and listening and and just connecting more with people in his politics 
and using this veteran wisdom to maybe move some things and make Canada even stronger. We forgot to ask him what he's promoting, but basically um, Canada. <laughs> Canada and a healthy environment. His social media handles are on Instagram. He's A. Vancouverden. <laughs> That's the, a very long last name. Just start typing in A-V-A-N-K-O-E and the rest will come up. <laughs> and on Twitter, it's a little easier, at Van Kayak. That is at V-A-N-K-A-Y-A-K. So go follow him there for his updates. Adam has shown us the power of sport in a life and the power of sport to connect us and to stay healthy. So make sure you're connecting to your local community sport organizations. If you have children, have them connected to those groups. Make sure you're getting out, you're connecting to nature, enjoying this beautiful place that we call home. Thank you, Adam. And a little shout out to my new speech pathology friend, Emily. <laughs> uh, small world. <laughs> Thank you for supporting this podcast. We've loved all the messages and reviews that we've received. Keep it coming. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.